might be wondering why this focus on, um, on before 1999. I think it will become clear through my talk, but what I want to um, give you is, of course, I, I want to show you how that is relevant for today and how possibly, I hope, we can identify in the very end um, how my case study speaks to, to wider issues um, that are yeah, almost fashionable at the moment when we talk about martyrs. But um, uh, I will start with a sort of ethnographic vignette which is as recent as it can get, two, three days ago. Mm -hmm. And I will also end with a very um, recent vignette, um, ethnographic vignette, um, and um, to pull things together. So I don't know, is anybody of you watching football? Mm -hmm. <laughs> then you know why I have to start with that this week. Um, talking about Albanian nationalism or, or Balkan nationalism. So what happened is, in Belgrade, for those who don't know, um, in Belgrade we, there was the European qualifier and the Albanians were playing in the stadium in Belgrade and Albanian, an Albanian audience was not allowed. Now why they were not allowed, this is in itself a bit um, complicated and there's various stories, but apparently um, there was an agreement that for security reasons, Albania should not come to Belgrade, and then um, the return game, the Serbs should not come to Albania. Um, there's also other stories that um, there was an, that it has something to do with that the Albanians were forced to um, have an Albanian passport, which automatically would have excluded all Albanians from Kosovo. So the Albanians of Albania rejected in solidarity with the Kosovans. So Kosovo is in the picture here. Um, and what happened? So they were um, the, the, uh, the, the Serbian only Serbian people. You see all the flags here, were really indulging in hate speech. There were lots of shouts in, in Serbs such as "Kill the Albanians!" Uh, and then suddenly, this <laughs> drone appeared over the football pitch, and it it, it was this flag, um, like forty-five, uh, almost um, the half half time. And it carried this flag, and um, then a Serb speaker, uh, sorry, a Serb um, player pulled down that flag, and then the Albanians in white, tr um, here's the flag, um, got at the, the Serb players and tried to defend their flag, and um, then fans got onto the pitch, attack attacked the Albanians, um, and eventually the Albanians, um, partly escorted by um, the, uh, the Serb players had to leave the pitch and they wouldn't come back out. And um, this was the flag. <laughs> and it said autochthonous. And this is now UEFA is, is discussing what will happen. I mean, it was an absolute scandal, of course, right? Um, so uh, why am I telling you this? Um, I think it, uh, well, first I want to point out here, these are symbols. It was referred to in the press as the Albanian flag, but it's not actually the Albanian national flag. What this is, it's a flag of where ethnic Albanians live, so it's a greater Albania flag, and these two here are Ismail Cemal, who was the founder of the state declaration of independence of Albania in 1912, and here's a hero, Isa Boletini, of the interwar period. So these are symbolic mythological references to nationhood. Um, and, and to greater Albania. So it was a provocation, no doubt, and an intended one. And the drones are important as well. Oops, sorry. So um, while I'm showing this, I, I think it demonstrates that the Manichaean drama of Serb-Albanian nationalist antagonism is pertinent as we speak, even though there's a lot of wonderful uh, contracts in place, but talk to ordinary people and emotions boil high. And this is not only evident on the football pitch, where you would sort of expect 
you know, nationalist emotions um, uh, to boil highs, if anywhere. But I think also looking at my Facebook page, and I'm connected with, literally with hundreds <coughs> of people. This is a diaspora society, and everybody's interconnected. Um, but also political speeches now in the aftermath, Albanian political speeches, press releases, media reporting. Um, there are a few voices of reason on moderation, but they are rare. And what's happening is um, um, there is a lot of appeals to national pride and in ways that are actually quite scary. And the symbols evoked, such as this flag and what it depicts, are linked to a sacred duty. And some have likened the Albanian players who jump to protect their flag, as it's referred to, to the major heroes and martyrs of the nation. And what's relatively new here, and Albanian has um, not been spared right-wing populism in recent years, as many countries across Europe, is the strong pan-national, so Albanian Kosovar identification from within Albania vis-a-vis -vis the Serbs. So they were still priding themselves as sort of being, you know, more European than the Kosovans and not as sort of engaged in the national discourse. And now there is really this overarching um, um, populist nationalism. And disagreement and contestations have become difficult um, because of this force of the prevailing discourse. Now I would like to shift the focus to Kosovo itself and draw attention to the radicalization process before the 99 war. Um, in 1999, this was when the Kosovo Liberation Army claimed victory over the Serbs with help of NATO intervention, although this victory... Um, and also Kosovo's independence declared in 2008 has not been recognized by Serbia to the present day. And my research was particularly interested in the drivers of this pre-war radicalization process. Today, these are what Harald Welzer has called, quote, the living carriers and communicators of experience. I've been exploring both their personal motives and the specific cultural mechanisms of generating and perpetuating a radical ideology at the time. And given the liberal paradigm of international intervention, such as multi-ethnicity uh, and reconciliation, I asked how and why um, what psychologist uh, Daniel Bartal has called a conflictive ethos can be passed on effectively through generations um, to the present day. And he, he worked, of course, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And partly guided by Jan Asman's concept of cultural memory, I looked into the ways in which these former activists, both in the past and in the present, have succeeded in normalizing, codifying, communicating, and legitimating um, social and personal memory by tapping into a specific cultural pool of recycled texts, images, and rights specific to their society. This last one was a quote from Asman. Ultimately, I was interested in what these tropes they refer to and evoke, um, what their functions are in society today. And I found that in culturally distinct ways, there is a sense of latent obligation to the cause um, which, which gets evoked, um, the cause of national liberation. And that has been produced and reproduced um, and created a, sp um, a spirit which I found effective even among most of the young Albanian students in the international diaspora, um, studying at universities in Switzerland, Germany, the UK, and elsewhere. And I come back to some examples of that later. 
So the research project, and I can also will explain those, uh, these are martyrs or heroes of um, this pre-war time and, and the war time. I'll come back to them later. <coughs> so just quickly about the project history. This was research funded by the Tristan Foundation over the last uh, four years until end of 2013. And it was part of a wider social and anthropological um, uh, social anthropological and historical research project originally under the working title Illegalia, the social and translocal organization of resistance in Kosovo during the 1980s and before um, and it ran under the auspices of the Free University Berlin Ost Institute for East European Studies also Open Institute um, Professor Hans Sundhausen and was originally conceptualized by the historian and anthropologist Dr. Joje Kretzi who tragically died in 2009 and then I took over from her and her original project, um, this was the name of the original project, it then had this working title, and this is now um, the provisional title of the forthcoming monograph on which I'm working. Um, what was special about this research was that, oh, this ethnographic historical research was that hanging out with the locals, in this case, meant meeting people in their ministerial offices, or in Parliament, or you know, NPO leaders, um, or being invited into the houses of families of national heroes, such as here. You see Afrim Gitia, I come back to him as well, as well. he died in 89. Um, and um, these ex-activists now populate, um, here, head of, um, Chef du Cabinet was my main respondent, really, in various ministers um, and party leaders, and so on and so forth. Um, they, these uh, former activists now populate the new elite strata and are present at, as top players in every relevant political party in post-war Kosovo. And by the same token, the families of um, martyrs of the pre-war time um, uh, enjoy great social prestige in society and have become supreme moral authorities. Um, invited and paraded on stage at every national occasion. And many of Kosovo's contemporary elites were young students and first radicalized in, during the period of the 1970s and 1980s. Um, the political landscape, um, even the main opposition, which emanates from a younger generation of students, um, so they would have been students in the 1990s, um, uh, sort of across the political spectrum, all major parties lay claim to being the heirs of the nationalist activists of, um, of this period, um, takers of high risk in um, organizing either violent or non-violent forms of resistance in, in this recent past and of fulfilling, as they say, the testament amanet of those fallen for national liberation during as well as before the war. Um, this is just a, you know, one example, a speech when um, this uh, movement for self-determination, which is sort of seen as um, accumulating or attracting young people and a young party, this was an NGO and uh, formed out of student resistance movement, um, joined forces with the Socialist Party. And then this is the reference to these legal and illegal organizations of the past, which also are you know, people in, in the main parties. Um, just to clarify these time periodizations I, I relate to, so the 1970s are broadly regarded by the Albanians as the golden age in, um, in Yugoslav history of Kosovo, um, and radical ethno-nationalism at that time was limited to the fringes of society only. And I argue that it was particularly during the 1980s, after Yugoslav Marshal Tito's death, 
in May 4, 1980. That was that what I call an Albanian militant spirit was effectively and deliberately picked up from these margins and um, its various invocations in earlier history since the 19th century, and now reproduced and codified and disseminated to wider effect. And some of my interlocutors would rather call it the nationalist or patriot spirit, but many of those who were involved in what the Kosovo Albanians have called the side for war are very proud of having advocated militancy at the time when this was not the mainstream. Um, then in the 1980s, this was a sp the specific time when following extreme state violence, and that was um, disproportionate <laughs> crackdown on student demonstrations, um, when that led to um, um, identifications that became increasingly ethno-national for, for much wider groups um, uh, of parts of the population in Kosovo. And although many blamed these activists as provocateurs at the time, they themselves could, um, referred to this period as a watershed, particularly because the situation generated all the, a, a lot of new support for their various groups at the same time. So society was quite split. Um, they would refer to those people who still put their hope into Yugoslavia as the Titoists, and they would sort of broadly be um, you know, coming from the urban cosmopolitan elites, and then you have... Um, people more from the countryside, um, from more disadvantaged background. And there is also these activists um, who Tim Judah, for example, has referred to as Enverists or sp and splinter groups. And um, here you see these, these huge amounts of um, in suddenly um, uh, imprisonment, so following these demonstrations. Um, so these uh, groups... Um, of former militants are subsumed in Albanian under the term illegalia, illegalia and that's um, sort of these underground self-organizing, self-clandestine uh, cell structures they formed. And according to prominent Albanian commentators, uh, mostly themselves associated with um, what's seen as a movement, illegalia is the name for, quote, a politically prohibited movement aimed at creating one's own national identity for national unification or for national equality as a natural right, unquote, or a civil right, another Albanian commentator. These are um, the quotations. These people are all um, professors at the University of Pristina now. And illegalia in its cultural context today emerges as a proud reference to a formerly illegal but to the legitimate historical movement from an officially legal but illegitimate Yugoslav regime as it ruled over Kosovo since its annexation in 1945 by Serbia. And the outcome of the 1999 war reified the militancy of these activists, but over long periods, as I said, they were operating at the fringes of society, and during the 1990s, when the majority of the population subscribed to the concept of nonviolent resistance and patience, Ibrahim Rogova's Durim, for those who, who, who know this background, um, their existence was at its most ambiguous. But that would be another paper. So in Albanian, the term evokes the idea of one consistent historical movement that inevitably led to the national liberation fight of the Kosovo Liberation Army, KLA. I come back, I come back to the terms in a moment. So I was given this um, by Chef du Cabinet and former activist Mehmet Hayrizi. So this would be his um, uh, periodization of this movement and how it developed. Um, other activists might disagree because you have various political splinter groups who say, oh, here you've forgotten this or that group. Um, but um, 
so Mehmet Hayoris has also written a history book about this. Just on a general note, I want I have to introduce a caveat here in terms of how I look at history and my informants or um, collaborators or respondents look at history because there are um, I am not representing their voices and there is disagreement. So this is an issue which we can discuss in, uh, later on if you like in terms of ethics perhaps also involved. But um, <coughs> so basically I, I find that um, history in the Albanian nationalist canon is one of path dependency. Um, culture is depicted as one of essence, um, sort of in the herder sense. Um, of, equals language equals culture, so to, so to say. And um, there, there's um, all these ideas, um, so actors and um, events are eulogized, and um, there is ideas of prophecy and destiny, the way it is written. So it's a sacred history. Uh, it's, it's like a religion. In fact, um, the nationalists say uh, the religion of Albanians is um, Albanianism because they have to unite, uh, sort of span uh, various different faith groups. Um, but this is also really interesting if one digs deeper into that. The um, main original um, sort of um, literature of Albanian national history in the 19th century, to who a lot of um, people uh, of, the, of these texts still refer, uh, had a big Tashi background. And this is a Shiite um, uh, um, dervish group. Um, and uh, they had. Uh, there is these ideas of martyrdom and the narratives as well, and these these ideas of the inevitability of pathway and the promise of salvation. So you find all that, and he wrote sort of these eulogizing narratives of the national hero Skanderbeg in the ways in which before um, um, the martyrs of um, the Shiites uh, were described. So. Okay, we might want to look at this later, but for me, I really look at history sort of not as necessarily, you know, the outcome already being clear in, beforehand, sort of as a process of cultural production and reproduction, or that's the way I'm interested in it. So what I now would like to demonstrate is that, uh, is what the actions and activities of the former activists of Illegalia, um, how they effectively succeeded in producing and reproducing, formalizing and codifying, as well as disseminating a symbolic canon of references, um, including this, this idea of history. And I'm particularly interested in the ways in which a sense of obligation for subsequent generations was created, and uh, to quote recur, a sense of obligation to those who have gone before us, which in this case are the martyrs of the liberation movement, and what is referred to as their sublime sacrifice in the Albanian canon. And in other words, in this production-reproduction process, I argue, selected cultural traditions became nationalized so as to enshrine every Albanian's obligation to the dead. And this process went hand-in-hand hand with wider social transformation processes and an active nationalization of family grievances, so much so that private and public, public and private concerns over the dead of the nation are sometimes very difficult to disentangle. And just to give you an example here, this would be um, uh, examples of uh, post-war nationalizations of private grief. So this would be a death notice um, after the war. 
um, where, which is typical, not, not Islamic, even though you have a Muslim uh, majority in Albania because of, you know, the pictures. And uh, this is sort of the old Yugoslav style. And um, if you read through that, there's all these references to culture. They, they use the, the idea of the marriage, the marriage to Mother Albania. So, and the sh- um, while um, guns were shot as is our tradition, um, and while his friends of Besa, and this is the concept of faithfulness, um, were there, and, and then it ends um, to all the m- martyrs um, of freedom and the martyrs um, of Kosovo. There's two different terms. I'll explain those in a moment about martyrdom. Deshmore and martyr, martyr it says. Um, so may the earth of Kosovo be light on you. This is just this formulaic um, way of death notices that you find in all Slavonic languages in the area as well. Um, and you could... Uh, one could look at those where actually um, monuments are paid for or songs are paid for to celebrate your um, your personal loss, your individual family member, and 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 integrate them into this nationalist uh, national canon. Um, so Ricoeur's obliging dead, those who have gone before us, um, if this was in fighting for national liberation, so with arms in hand, they are referred to as martyrs called. Deshmoor in Albanian. And um, Deshmoor is from Albanian Deshmoi, to bear witness. So they are they testify to the cause. In fact, this is an Albanian cult, loan translation of martyr as well, because uh, in all Abrahamic religi- religions, martyrs mean, martyr means witness to the cause, the, those who testify. Martyrdom, in other words, is testimony or proof of the righteous and civilian victims are referred to as victima or very rarely also as martyrs Um, and I trust you Albanian to understand those two terms Um, however if um, those referred to were fallen fighters of the Kosovo Liberation Army KLA they were called uh, Deshmore and in Albanian this term evokes veneration of something absolutely sacred dignity rather than shame masculine pride rather than symbolic effeminization. And this, again, are emotions that I also find recaptured in these Facebook conversations around the football scandal um, right now. And uh, Deshmore is also the term, incidentally, which was used in Albanian for the fallen partisan fighters of the anti-fascist liberation war of the, uh, sec- after the Second World War, um, or during the Second World War, in the previous Yugoslav discourse. So there's a lot of cultural influence as well from, from Yugoslavia and Albania and the, and the communist rhetoric. So I'm coming back to some of the major martyrs here. So Zahir Payasiti, this is on the main square in Albania. You see around his gun there's all these flowers and um, he died bef- shortly before the war in um, arranging already sort of confronting with guns in hand um, um, Serbian police. And um, yeah, more iconically, uh, even more iconically, uh, Adam Yashari, and um, in another research and various papers was done, we looked at, he's now basically referred to as the legendary commander, and the whole story of um, his sublime sacrifice, which includes, uh, he's the... F- <coughs> the head of a family, there were 28 um, kids and women and extended family, um, all died in 1998 under shellfire, um, Serb shellfire, 
they are, um, they, this whole story has become the master narrative, the founding myth of this new independent Kosovo. So there's no place where Yashar, the legendary commander, is not referred to. There's a real messianism in the ways in which um, the story is told about that his sublime sacrifice brought in NATO. And that's really interesting how that differs from the, um, from the story of uh, the international story where Rajak uh, matters much more of having brought in um, NATO, which was much more dubious in case of victims or perpetrators, um, because there were all these people um, dead, possibly dead KLA soldiers, but in civilian clothes. So um, this, the story here is that even the, the girls in the house fought back with their guns in the hand, and that he had a song on his lips when um, sort of facing death. So there's this agency which I want to pull out, matters a lot. Um, and there is a great identification potential of this story and the site of this martyrdom. Um, and I'll show you a few pictures in a moment. And Afrim Jitia, um, you saw the pictures of his family before. Um, this is a museum devoted to him, which hardly any national, international in, in Kosovo in Pristina would know. There is one uh, here. This is his shirt in which he was uh, killed. And it's displayed like that in plastic. And you see where the gun, uh, the shot went through and the blood is drying. There is this mythology of once the... Um, uh, blood turns yellow, it, uh, it requires revenge. But, you know, that might be even interpreting, uh, over-interpreting, but uh, anyway, Afrim Jitia is, is this other hero, and they all link up nicely. I wondered whether there's any hierarchy in this, asking people sort of, is one more important than the other? But they are all, they are all part of this important pantheon of the nationalist religion. So um, some terms, uh, uh, last terms I've already mentioned, uh, besa, so this is a polysemous term which does not easily translate into any one English word. Usually it translates as an honor-bound um, pledge or informal contract demanding faithfulness to the given word as well as the protection of the social bond created. And it's really interesting because um, it becomes important exactly when loyalty and faithfulness should be created beyond the immediate family. So when it goes beyond the family, and that's, you know, na national identification are always modernizing, modern identification beyond the immediate family. And the amanet, also mentioned already, comes from Turkish, emanet translates as the living will, last wish, legacy, or the obligating bequest, or testament. And according to the Albanian anthropologist Gerda Dalipay, in ordinary death rituals in Albania still today, the fulfillment of the amanet of the deceased is a matter of social cross-generational obligation sanctioned by, quote, the principles of honor and shame as well as fear of the afterlife for the living relatives, unquote. And in the words of a prominent former Kosovar political illegalia activist and prisoner, Hudayet Husseini, reflecting on the organization of militant resistance in the decades after the Second World War, in cases where, quote, somebody held the amanet of his father or grandfather, he would have been morally obliged for his entire life to avenge any injustices they had suffered, unquote. And from a social structure where family solidarity across the generation is imperative, this also goes, you know, beyond um, to a national cross-generational cross obligation. These are pictures from the site of where Yashari and his family died, and it's been elevated and sacralized, um, and there is these tourist pilgrims who visit, and you have all these repercussions. There is not a political speech where Yashari is not mentioned. Um, busloads come and school kids um, to visit the site um, and pay their respects. Um, 
And I looked in the, or Anna Delelio and I, we did um, write together about this and did this research together on this particular site. We looked at the visitors' books um, and also the brochures that are sell, sold here, these, these, this literature. And we found um, lots of readers or writers, authors there, explicitly referring to the Amanet left by Adam Yashari and his family, and that it ought to be fulfilled. So they wrote, you have, quote, from a visitor book entry, you have told me what the Amanet, you have taught me what the Amanet is, the blood of the martyrs will not be forgotten and similar. And there are expressions of gratitude for their sacrifice and acknowledgement, which have assured, quote, the freedom that we enjoy today, unquote, and um, you have taught us how to live and how to die, another quote. Um, this is one of these iconic designed uh, images. This is Yash Yashari's face, which has become this emblem of, of, of this, this whole narrative. Um, and it was Bat Ukru, this is a sort of honorary uncle. It is fulfilled. And that was, you know, there were T-shirts with this, right after Independence Declaration 2008. And um, now this was, uh, I found that on Facebook after the football scandal, just to go back to that, and it says, um, uncle, honorable uncle, it is fulfilled. We have erected our flag even in Serbia. Um, so how do the survivors of um, these... Um, the survivors, uh, not the martyrs, but the survivors of the same um, uh, activities compared to the martyrs in terms of their credibility. So in Kosovo today, those who survived accrued great social prestige and political legitimacy out of their biographies. While martyrs are perceived as undisputed witnesses to the cause, as, you know, the very etymology of the term, and by their death, there are also other means referred to in terms of the concept of sacrifice, and this does not need to be by death, um, and terms which authenticate a former activist's contemporary social and political legitimacy and credibility. Oops. And this is prominently biographies and having spent a lot of time in prison, as political prisoner. Um, so the biographies of ex-militants, which include histories of long prison sentences, serve as such proof. And you find when you look at a lot of you know, politicians that they really put up their, their biographies and there's always this reference to, to having, having been a political prisoner at the time. And the association of ex-political prisoners is about as powerful, if not more, than the War Veterans Association in contemporary Kosovo. And at the time, in um, the early 1980s, um, the show trials conducted, um, and there are pictures here of the 1980s, they just, you know, it won't tell you that much, but they basically give you a who is who in politics today um, in Kosovo. So Jakub Krasnici was, um, oh, there's an A missing, he was an, um, an <coughs> speaker of parliament, uh, head of party now, just a splinter party, um, um, and uh, yeah, so these top politicians anyway, but they are also very interesting because this generation now in a way is also, you wouldn't think that immediately from what I've told you so far, but they are the compromising ones now. They are the ones who, who are ready to work with internationals and reconcile and find new ways. There's something, you know, they are proud of, they have served, they, they say some of them, the um, prison sentence made me think and you know, and I 
grew older, and there, there is really interesting a generational conflict as well. This is Hudayat um, Husseini, very famous picture of him on the, con um, on the um, demonstrations, calling out, and now he's the head of the pr um, prisoners' association. Um, so these are the same people who gather also at important funerals or reburials when the martyrs are honored. Again, it is as these occasions that one can literally see who, is who, who in terms of political and social kudos in Kosovo today. Um, so Fatme Lima, for example, is, is um, infamous as well for, he was an important minister, um, but also for the, you know, being on trial uh, at the ICTY. So who were these militants at the time and what were the original motives of those who were ready to give their lives for the cause and if not dead today succeeded in acquiring such social status and prestige in post-war Kosovo? And in fact, um, there is, I in, sort of pointed to that already indicated that they understood themselves as modernizers. Um, the student generation of the 1970s and 1980s were young poets and teachers often the first in their families to acquire higher education um, or even only to have a chance to learn to read and write in Albanian. They were cultural entrepreneurs who aspired to a modernization project um, uh, process uh, in the romantic style of the uh, 19th century. They consciously transformed cultural traditions of the vi in the villages from where they were from. They found themselves very often excluded from the elites in the city. And they also utilized a revolutionary ideology from both Yugoslav and Albanian partisan war histories uh, to put them in the service of the ethno-national cause. And in best 19th century nation-building tradition, uh, they agitated as much with the gun as with the pen. You saw the picture earlier. Um, they did promote also part of their modernization idea was you know, coming from traditional, very patriarchal society to, to promote new attitudes towards women. To what extent that succeeded is another question, which would be another paper. I can't go into that. But this was sort of part of the ideology very much. And um, so pen and gun are, of course, revolutionary rhetoric. And they saw it as their aim explicitly to generate and disseminate the national spirit amongst the wider population and mobilize a national uprising. So terms they use are such as purgatin, that appears a lot in, in, in their literature. Here, um, um, here you saw that this is gun and, a gun and pen. Here's the woman and, and her gun. Um, and these are martyrs. These were um, people who in the early 1980s were killed in abroad when these various groups tried to unite in this new momentum of the 1980s. Um, so uh, purgatim means to prepare. This means themselves and others. So it's an ideological pre preparation. And fornizim, furnished to get, um, to get guns into the country for this uh, future uprising, but also to, to distribute, uh, to generate and distribute um, in, um, this zamizdat sort of equivalent um, for the Albanians. I looked also into their family histories and found that Beyond struggles against inequality and for social advancement, their motives were closely linked to family grievances. For example, over petition after World War II, experiences um, were told and retold of remembering the mother crying or um, whoever in the family over a lost relatives who had to stay on the other side when Albania and Kosovo were divided. Um, observing also everyday practices of humiliation and violence by Serb police against family members um, where stories frequently told 
and typically they originated from families which were what was called declassified in the Yugoslav system and discriminated against accordingly because former family members had already fought on adverse sides. And by the same token, they recognized fellow activists as trustworthy if these came from similar, what they called, patriot families. Um, but it was not the only thing that um, generated trust when they had their sort of cell structure and um, tried to organize um, and widen their networks. There was also various forms of individual testing that we then found again with the KLA um, and their practices of seeing who they could trust or not. So what I want to say, without going any, any deeper into these particular aspects, their own personal and family experiences were simultaneously national grievances. Their personal and their national, the national cause for them was the same. Um, I find quite interesting when you compare this to other nation uh, movements and resistance movements. Um, for example, um, uh, Roger Peterson wrote about Lithuania, and he found that um, you don't need more than 1% of the population to be willing to take high risk um, that a movement can be prompted. And he um, called these people, these high-risk takers, the first players. And he just had to say what they need to rely on in order for it to work is strong ties and support from within their local communities, of which the local actors, uh, of which the actors were socially part. And these are pro these also provide them with the applicable frame of collective value orientation and norms that motivate actions and taking high risk. And um, also in the Lithuanian example, for example, this reference to honor is very important. And then the opposite, the traitor, which plays such a role in the Albanian rhetoric as well. Um, and he found for the Lithuanian case that new experiences of extreme state violence affirmed and ordered this cognitive scheme and produced a familial plot line, including role assignments such as the martyr or the traitor, um, through which the radical actors would give sense to their own actions. So in other words, the specific cultural and social context informs the prestige economies that matter here. Um, I will be a bit quick. These are various influences, and they told me themselves. But just to show you that these inspirations are not only from... Um, uh, so Yashari, again, the one identification here is with... Um, Topoli, who was um, eulogized in the Alba neighboring Albanian, Enver Hodges, Albanian mythological canon as the guy who really brought education but also fought with guns in uh, hand and, and organized the group in the, in the interwar period. Um, yeah, and you might just see that there are a few other ideals that matter here. Um, and the ways in which uh, the, these activists recycled and codified tropes of local tradition um, reminds me also of what Franz Fanon has said for Algeria, where he says, in processes of militant self-mobilization, popular song and storytelling can acquire a new cultural value in taking recourse to, quote, the epic with its standardized forms. It re-emerges re in attempts to, quote, update the battles and modernize the types of struggle, the heroes' names, and the weapons used by means of allusion to the old, and I think one could then add, um, and there's obviously also global inspirations. Now, um, showing you an example of one prominent former, again, already mentioned, former political activist and former prisoner, Hudayat Husseini. He actively contributed to the nationalization of the cultural family-based concept of the Amanet in one of Illegalia's most famous poems called Pushka Amanet, the Amanet of the Gun, 
published in the underground journal Lyria, Freedom, in a special 1980s issue called Kangut Elyris, The Songs of Freedom. Uh, this poem makes reference to the brutal gun collection campaigns of the 1950s. These, according to Noel Malcolm, were conducted in such a brutal manner, quote, that many Albanians would prudently buy a weapon in order to have something to surrender, unquote. In this poem, a father warns his son of the Serbs, quote, no, they do not just want our guns, they want to suppress everything that is Albanian. Name, language, please, and that's the characteristic white felt hat, um, and, unquote. And thus threatened in their entire identity, according to the poet's voice, there is no other choice for the people than not to surrender their guns alive, because, quote, the gun is the honor of the house, this is the amanet through the generations, this is the gun of freedom, unquote. And this poem, secretly disseminated, disseminated in the 1980s, became something like a hymn. Is that the English pronunciation? Hymn? Hymn. Yeah. Um, for all young Albanian militants aspiring to become heroic freedom fighters, according to some research respondents of a younger generation who actively fought as fighters of the KLA. And such cultural creation and reproduction activities achieved what the activists aspired to, the deliberate transmission of the militant, they would say, the national spirit through the, through the generations. Bres pas bresi, they would say. So I'm now coming to my second and last recent ethnographic vignette. As recently now as last week, really old in compared to this football scenario, um, and I will then conclude with some thoughts, and that's really new thoughts just in process, and it would be great to have a debate and perhaps some input from you um, where I'm going with this. So, um, and, and how that could be possibly applied to uh, wider issues of, of martyr ide ideology. So last week, I was invited by the Kosovo Embassy to a book presentation <coughs> in London. This was a book about atrocities and death, civilian death, during and before the war of 1999. A heavy, richly illustrated book which was almost unbearable to open. It contained an endless list of graphic colored photos of mangled bodies and rows after rows of names of both recent and historical individual Albanian victims of war and violence. At the event, the book itself was presented as testimony, deshmi, which is related to deshmoi, witnessing. Yeah? Um, and to quote from the book, um, as testimony to the violence, terror, and genocide committed on the Albanians, unquote. Titled, The Terror of Invading Serbia over the Albanians, 1844-1999, on the first page it, quote, uh, it states, quote, the cultural heritage and spirit of the Albanians testifies to their ancient history and Albanian autochthony in their ethnic geography, unquote, my translation. Um, remember, autochtony. I mean, I didn't even know what autochtony means before I started doing ethnographic fieldwork in Albania, where every <coughs> child knows what autochtony means. The indigenous being from there, from that soil. Historical continuity and ethnic autochtony and primordial arrival are important arguments through which Serb and Albanian nationals make opposite claims to the same territory. The introduction continues, quote, the aim of the Serb invader was, at least since 1844, by annihilating parts of the Albanian nation to annihilate such proof, unquote, such proof being here, cultural heritage and Albanian spirit. 
Um, again, my translation. There's also an English and a French and a Russian translation, and a Serbian translation, I think, in this book, but they are not quite... I really look at the original Albanian trying to be verbatim here. There is also call, a call on the future generations never to forget, but also it was mentioned in the talk um, that this is now not about revenge. So there, there is also compliance, of course, with the international rhetoric. Um, the main e part of the evening... <coughs> was the presentation of a film, a voiceover to the few pictures shown from the book informed us that these wounded bodies were the nation's wounds. Luckily for the viewer's sensitivities, however, the film mostly showed the author uh, shaking hands and posing with his book and guests at similar book presentations in, list of, um, in a list of other places across the world. Um, there was also biographical footage, so this reference to biography again was important. Uh, speeches referring to the author's time as a political prisoner, as a member of the Legalia, and of the KLA, of course. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, and also he was he was also a cultural entrepreneur. He was a, even during the war he was a radio broadcaster during the 1990 war. Um, mainly, however, the film assembled snippets of Swiss. Uh, Swedish, German, US and other international guests to similar book launches in Luzern, Stockholm, Stuttgart, New York and many other places where large parts of the Albanian diaspora reside and these international guests acknowledged the significance of this book in front of the camera. There were also prominent Albanian and Kosovar speakers both in this <coughs> film and on stage express expressing their respect for the author's patriotism and his work. Much of the film presented the audience with almost a mirror image of what we were presented with at this launch in London. And I also found myself, I arrived a bit late, immediately ushered to the front row. Here I was sat next to the Albanian the Kosovan amb ambassador. And, and later I was ushered to express my respect to the author and pose for some photos. And I was also asked to speak to the camera, but I refused. And I can talk about ethical issues later. This is really, of course, a contested issue when you really immerse in the study of nationalism. Right? So what was happening here? I immediately sensed an instrumental use of both victims and observers, a publicly endorsed voyeurism of dead bodies. Were these victims objectified? Um, did they consent to their nationalization of their distorted bodies? Had they agreed to the display of their dead bodies, be this to the service of their nation or one man's career? Or was my own privileged upbringing in a post-heroic environment and post-Second um, post World War Germany preventing me from empathy with and even recognition of true victimhood? Was nobody else present in person nor presented in the film as skeptical about a possible appropriation as I was? If so, nobody said so, and there were no questions and answers to the podium. And in fact, many of my Albanian friends had stayed away. Um, but also, uh, but at the uh, wine reception following the speeches of honor, some of those who had come and who I knew as usually critical minds were busy pronouncing their patriot attitudes to each other. And this fell short of the formal pronunciations of faithfulness of um, an, um, the, the head of the Albanian Student Association in Geneva, which I found on the web afterwards, with just the same sort of event where the same book was um, presented. And he said in his formal speech there, the amanet of the martyrs, Deshmore, he used, of the fatherland form for free and democratic Kosovo has to be pursued to the end. Unquote. That was an um, event in October one year ago. At the London event, 
there was a prevailing sense that it would have been sacrilegious in the face of this conjuring up of mass murder to point out issues such, such as that the photos lacked any precise archival identification in this book, even though the book is published by, as it states, um, by the Kosovo State Archive and the KLA's archive. And even though the author had served as the director of the latter until 2006, and currently his job is, he's a professor at the University of Pristina, but he's also director of the government's archive. So I come to some final thoughts and my conclusion now. Here, this is a picture um, um, in, in a private house again. Just some final thoughts. Um, I think, uh, firstly, that the Manichaean drama of the Albanian Serb conflict resembles a battle over proofs of various order, which have little to do with the standards of forensic evidence um, as a type of knowledge production, as we would find, say, at the International Crimes Tribunal in The Hague. And of course, even though there is reference made, so the speaker, the author said, my book is used at the ICTY, but I don't think he reflects on how it would be used, not necessarily in the ways he would have intended to. You know, there's also lists of, for example, Serb perpetrators in there, and you know, no source reference whatsoever. Um, proof of devotion to the cause um, are, um, at, at the least, ambiguous. Um, if you have a family member who has died for the cause, or, um, or if you have sacrificed during a lifetime by being imprisoned for imprisoned for um, for the cause, but I think this example shows how also photographs can become uh, can be proof. But here it seems to be not the victim, not the dead body, but the agency of the photographer and the presenter or the performer, if you like, which accrues prestige, not the death themselves. And um, further thinking, martyrdom evokes pride and veneration, transforming shame into dignity. But it is really about agency, agency in the making, giving, producing of evidence for the cause. And while the phone kale aid fighter, the Dishmore, um, are a witness to the cause for their militant agency and willing, perform willing performance of sacrifice, the civilian victim becomes not such a witness unless photographed. And it is then the display of these photographs which serves as testimony and proof of the cause. And this book itself therefore acquires a sacred value and serves the same social political functions as the architectural monuments to the fallen KLA fighters. It's a monument, and monuments are proofs of thought as well. And another thought, by photographing dead bodies, as well as by collecting and presenting these photographs of dead bodies to a wider audience, similar as with the publication of death notices, erecting monuments and even producing artifacts for the reception room, like here this tapestry, annihilation and forgetting is transformed into testimony and remembering. So this book presentation thus fitted in the, into the battle over commemoration or the politics of memory um, that can be observed across the political spectrum in Kosovo. The scooping of legitimacy, legitimacy out of an association with the right cause, even if the cause has not been witnessed by death, and the production of a wider morality in contemporary Albanian society in Kosovo. And this morality has not only effectively become hard to contest within the Albanian community, but it also stands in contradiction, of course, to the liberal paradigms of multi-ethnicity and reconciliation advocated by Onmek and Ulex. Um, so, for example, on the back of this book, it says explicitly... Um, some, the, 
the, the publication was delayed because, quote, some of the political forces within Kosovo society connected to the UN OMIC organ and later to the European Union institution EULEX with the responsibility for international protectorate in Kosovo, unquote, are res were responsible for delay in publication. Um, so I'm, I'm leaving with some unfinished thoughts. I, I, I'm also thinking that the comparing the Amanet as sort of this request for agency and then the agency translating into actual martyrdom that then becomes proof that there's an interesting process here happening which I'm still trying to think <laughs> through what that actually is um, and uh, the, the only thing which I find really worrisome in all of this is that the, the issue of performance is so paramount that the putting on stage in order to become proof and I think this is also where massive risks lie um, thanks